Good afternoon, everyone. For those of you who've been joining us regularly, welcome back. And for those of you just discovering us, we hope you find this session useful as we all try to navigate this completely unprecedented time and our important return to work. We have been doing this series for the past couple of weeks, each time with a different focus on a particular part of the preparation to go back to work and reopen the economy. We've talked to leading epidemiologists. We've done deep dives on testing and childcare and transit. Our last session was a really interesting session on what it will take to get consumer demand back. Today, we're going global. We're very excited to learn some lessons about what's happening around the world in places that have already opened up and what that can teach us in the United States as we prepare as well. The company, the Chamber has four different task forces that are currently working sector specific on how to get back to work. And it's fascinating how often we hear from our member companies about what they're doing overseas, what they're hearing from overseas, and how that they're applying that and those lessons learned to getting back to work here. Today's speakers are gonna share their insights on the global trends, challenges, successes, and also some opportunities for learning that we hope will help us and all of you in the days and weeks to come. We're joined today by Chris Schroeder, who is co-founder of Next Billion Ventures, which in invests in tech companies in emerging market. Chris is an investor in disruptive enterprises, and he has ventures all over the world, which bring a great global perspective. Due to the time difference earlier today, I interviewed Ryan McMorrow, who is with the Financial Times. He's in Beijing and gave us some very interesting insights into what's happening in that country. We will share that conversation with you by tape in the middle of our segment. Finally, also joining us live is Dr. Frank Ulrich Montgomery, who is chair of the World Medical Association. Dr. Montgomery will discuss how Germany responded, how they got ahead on tech on testing and flatten the curve. He'll also share key learnings from other parts of the world that the U.S. can use as more states here begin to open. The team and I are really looking forward to each of these perspectives about the whole global impact that this is having. And as usual, we'll take audience questions at the end, so feel free to type them into the chat function as we go along here. So let's turn first to Chris Schroeder, who, as I mentioned, is co-founder of Next Billion Ventures. So Chris, this series has spent a lot of time and a lot of attention on what's happening here in the United States. Could you give us a broad perspective on how this has progressed globally and what some of the trends are that are starting to emerge? It's terrific uh, to be with you, Suzanne. I can't salute enough you and your team and the U.S. Chamber. I mean, you guys have been unbelievable in the best of times, but the real test of an organization is what you do when things are tough and, and what you've been doing with these series and much of your other work, I think is profoundly important. And I just also salute the audience because you you are the folks that are actually building businesses and hiring people in the best of times, and you've never been more important than you are right now. So it's uh, just an honor to be with you. Um, look, I think there, there, there are four sort of takeaways as I tour the Grove is the way that I can put them all together. And I kind of lump them under uh, the book of Micah. I'm not particularly a theologian by any stretch of the imagination, but his quote that we live in an era where one should do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God is probably the guidepost of so much of what we're wrestling right now. I mean, the, the four lessons under that that I see quite regularly is, you know, this is a once in a century transmission. There's so much that we still don't know about this disease uh, medically 
and there's plenty that we don't understand about it economically. But um, it's easy to say that this is something that we've sort of seen before, but I really think this one is really uh, without precedent and it, it requires a sense of uh, humility with it. Second observation is that I don't think anyone has quote unquote gotten it right, but a lot of people are doing some very interesting tests overall. I mean, North Korea and Taiwan has been having some great success and I hope that that sustains, but we have to remember that even a few weeks ago, we would have said Singapore was one of the great success and it's doing some amazingly wonderful things, but now is, you know, having deep, deep challenges that they've been reintegrating migrant worker population and other things uh, that have been challenging there overall. We'll talk more ch about China later. It's obviously been the most active and progressive, but it is watching uh, things which are surprising on a day-to-day -day basis. Japan, which has done great things, has just recently declared a state of emergency as the second wave has come. It's still very early in Europe. And even in some of the rising economies that I'm in, it's very, very mixed. So Jordan, interestingly, has been doing very, very well. Uh, the Gulf has been kind of interesting in the Middle East, but if you go over to Latin America, uh, there's tremendous uncertainty right now in Brazil and Mexico and other places. So to the degree is a third observation that there's a playbook to what people are doing around the world. It just boils down to suppression, do everything we can to support the healthcare capacity, uh, try to get scalable testing first for healthcare workers, but expand it quickly, do what we can to get scalable contact testing, but the science and research is still out on how good that is, and obviously it will raise privacy issues, and then get to this gradual reopening where we get an essential workforce expanded beyond it. We are protecting the elderly and the people who are ill. We have a gradual phase in of activity. Everyone is wearing masks. We're pushing for rapid but reliable testing and new technology solutions are called vaccines. But I think what a lot of people miss is that the most important element in any country is what we as individuals are doing. It is uh, time for all of us to step up and take this information seriously and to watch out for each other uh, because there's gonna be a lot of learning over overall. Because the overall takeaways really is that in the best practices we see, it's still gradual and not rapid. There's gonna be no flipping of a switch. We have to psychologically as executives be prepared for fluctuations and being told in certain places to go back to where we were and not worry about that, but kind of go with it. We are all part of real-time experiments. And we have to remember that while it's going to be tempting in the next week or two, as more countries in Europe and even states in America open up, that things are back to normal. Uh, but there's nothing normal right now. So that's the way the world looks to me. That only gives me about 592 questions I want to ask you. But let me start with this one. When you think about a new normal, you know, it's a phrase that we're hearing a lot. But I think what we're really going to get back to is, as Ross thought said, it's kind of a, a a semi-normal, right? And so as you think about opening up, what do you see as temporary versus more permanent changes as a result of this crisis? There is, I think, in the meme of a new normal or the meme that everything will be different, this kind of sense that it's going to be that dramatic. And I think if history of any crisis has shown us is that we as humans want to gravitate to the old normal. And I think that we should expect a lot of that. I think people are dying to get back to some form of entertainment and restaurants and sports and um, your business as usual the way that it is. And it will be it have guardrails on it. But that instinct will be there. But there are some things that have been unleashed here which will not go back. And it will be kind of a, an expediting of what has been happening already. And the way that I think about that, and I am seeing this everywhere in the world, is we have seen arguably five or ten years of people slowly adjusting to virtualness in their lives jammed into about three or four weeks. So in other words, all of us are comfortable on this call with you know ordering things online and all that kind of stuff. Well, the fact of the matter is most American retail is not online, like 12% of all retail in America is in e-commerce, but that you know I think is about to change very, very powerfully overall. Uh, we will be saying goodbye, I think in short order to cash. Um, around the world, this has been happening, China has been a lead to it, but even Saudi Arabia uh, just a couple of weeks ago effectively required by fiat that cash transactions are to go away on digital transactions. And that means that people who've been hesitant about it 
are now being pulled much more quickly to, to accept it in very powerful ways. Millions, hundreds of millions of people now who are dubious about telemedicine are saying, you know something, I actually feel empowered talking to my doctor in my bedroom, uh, which is, I think, an amazing kind of a thing. And God knows all of us have, and hundreds of millions of people have, uh, kids who are, have been always comfortable with a digital uh, forte are now doing digital education in a way that makes a lot of people say, you know, we really can learn in very efficacious ways. It's not necessarily that it replaces everything, but it takes us there. And so this is, again, a massive shift that every business can ask, how am I engaged in a world of rapid acceptance of virtualness? And there's one cautionary note that we should think of as individuals and certainly as society, because left out in the assumption of what I've just said is, there are 2 billion people on the planet who do not have access to the basic technology required in virtual. And I think there are going to be opportunities now, not just to give lip service to digital divide, but to realize that there are business opportunities and societal obligations to make sure that we're not saying to other people, the only way you can compete is by not getting on the road. Because not having access to technology is effectively like saying you can't get on the road. And that's not going to go back. And that will be compounded in a way that I think it hasn't been up until. Is that what you mean when you, I've read articles where you've been quoted as saying that this is the greatest shift in human behavior at the fastest clip in history? Is that what you mean by that statement? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, uh, uh, September 11th was a great shift in hu uh, human behavior. Wartime is a great shift in human behavior. But again, this idea that so many hundreds of millions of people literally around the world are saying, you know, I can buy and have things delivered. I can use a credit card online, which many emerging markets, they don't at all. But now I in America will use mobile payments and not even use my credit card. That again, I will talk to my doctor online. Again, I will study classes and I as an employer will give credit to those classes as a value add to the trained workforce that I want to have going forward. That has happened with a speed that if you and I had this conversation a month ago, I would have told you was easily five years away and maybe a decade. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's so interesting. You know, one of the first things we talked about in this series with the Harvard epidemiologist was when you get to a slower part of the curve, it gives a minute for the doctors, for scientists, for technologists to lift up and say, what have we learned? What is changing? And it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. Let me ask you, uh, quickly to do a deep dive into a couple of the areas you mentioned. You said we'd get back to China. As you've seen China slowly reopen here, what do you think is working there? Have there been lessons for us here? Well, I think the lessons uh, that we have to look at, we need to be cautious about. I know the next speaker will talk a little bit about the data that we receive and how confident he is with it. And he's a great journalist there. And I would take a lot of that to the bank. Um, but look, I think at the end of the day, their game plan has been to incorporate some things that we as a society and as business executives have to ask ourselves. Uh, that that we have to become comfortable with. So strict neighborhood monitoring and testing. I mean, they, they really are doing amazing things. If you uh, order from a McDonald's now, you literally will get a statement with what you just ordered to your house in Beijing that is literally telling you uh, the temperature of everyone who's touched your food, whether they've been tested, like this is the kind of thing that they've done, which I think has been helpful. They culturally, societally have been quite good about social distancing and masks and that type of stuff. Um, offices, you know, it's depending what city and you're talking about, but maybe 70, 80% are kind of going back cautiously to work. Millions of kids are sort of back. I've talked to people, you know, who are at restaurants when they're talking to me, maybe they're 25% at capacity. Um, obviously they've held hard on international travel restrictions. And so all these are very interesting as part of the playbook. But the fact of the matter is, we don't know what will come next. And so, for example, in the northern area of Harbin, uh, there have been some significant breakouts again. And so 
Again, it's going to have to be something that's going to be very flexible about it. One really interesting observation a bunch of Chinese tech companies told me that surprised them about being virtual before they started to go back, though, that I always thought was fascinating, was that they paid a price in culture of their companies being virtual, that for all the power of Zoom or whatever video use you have, you also do miss something in problem solving and sort of reading people's body language uh, by being at least from time to time in an office. And so a lot of these companies I've talked to are spending a tremendous amount of time effectively resetting the culture in their companies that people are starting to come back. And um, so, look, I think this is going to be an interesting kind of adjustment that allows us to rethink not only what has worked or not worked in the age we're in right now, but to realize that we can rethink of things that have come before. And I'm seeing some good evidence of that in places like China, and I think early evidence of it in Germany. It's interesting that you say that. One of the things we were reading about and writing about ourselves has been we're watching an older generation become much more comfortable with, as you called it, virtual and faster, more nimble than we thought they would. And we're watching a younger generation really appreciate face-to-face -face more than they did before. Yeah, I think it is interesting. Let me ask you, we're going to turn to China in a minute, do a deeper dive then with Dr. Montgomery on Europe. So let me ask you, uh, before we turn to them, to double down for a minute on the rising economies and how, how you're seeing this pandemic and the response to that pandemic shape those places. One of the interesting challenges in trying to assess it, and therefore a lot of the impact that I have is highly anecdotal, is that the data that we have is, is harder to measure. If you, you know, as you understand, if you go to places like North Africa or many parts in Latin America and certainly Africa, the economies are massively gray, right? I mean, they're not, quote unquote, um, uh, being measured in the same way of what's going on in, in some of the places that we have some better measurements in. Um, and the element of what has surprised me and then what is intriguing to me, I mean, what has surprised me is that there is conventional wisdom that in these poorer countries, healthcare systems are going to get wiped out, that the disease is going to be very rampant. And there's certainly signs of that element somewhere, but nowhere near as bad as I might have predicted so far. And I was just talking, in fact, to some entrepreneurs in Egypt, and, and it's amazing to kind of watch how that net-net that things are going very well. On the other hand, you know, we just had a study that came out of California that massive numbers of people have no symptoms. So what that will mean if that's playing out in other places, I think is going to be hard to tell. On the more negative side, as I mentioned before, I think Brazil has been having some real significant challenges on the ground. And one of the biggest differentiations, and I think this is true in all markets, but it is key in some of the rising markets that I've seen, is do you trust that what's being told to you is correct? And I think that as we think about where the challenges rise, even if the news isn't good, if people feel that they're being dealt with squarely, that tends to keep people working together and being more sort of having a broad perspective on it. In places like in Brazil can be an example of this, where there is a feeling that the government just isn't being square with you and you know that people in your family are dying, that then has a multiplier ramification that's very hard to predict how that will play. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such an interesting uh, conversation. When we did the demand conversation last week, we were talking about the fact that you have to have confidence in order to create demand. People will decide at some point when businesses come back because they'll create the demand for it. And the confidence is such an important piece of that. And clarity is such an important piece of that. Clarity of message, confidence in that message is a direct link to demand. Financial Times, where he focuses on Chinese corporate technology. And uh, I think he had some really interesting things to say, a couple of them off camera, which I might, which I might add at the end. But let's roll that tape. Well, good afternoon, Ryan, and thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you are joining us live from your 
home in Beijing. Tell us uh, what it's like there now, what it was like to live through the early days of this crisis there. Yeah, so now it's it's definitely on its way back to being normal. Um, I guess face masks are still a part of our life um, and temperature checks pretty much everywhere you go in and out of the building, um, they'll point a thermometer gun at your at your forehead as probably they do places in the US now. Um, so that's kind of, um, and actually there's restaurants, when you're in a restaurant, you still have to be uh, seated, seated like a meter apart from other people. So uh, there's definitely reminders all the time that it, life is not normal, but um, there's cars on the street. Um, most places are opened up. So we're in some semblance of normality here, um, which is very different from what it was like uh, like two or three months ago. I think I landed back in China from out of the country on January um, 20th or so. And my, the first sign of things not being normal is everyone wearing masks in the airport. And then um, on January 23rd, they locked down and quarantined Wuhan. Um, and then I think from there onwards, the, the country was pretty much shut down for uh, the end of January and, and most of February. Um, so yes, that was, I guess, similar to what you all are in now. You know, most of us, most of this audience, uh, we don't get to talk to people on the ground in China. And so we rely on news reports out of there, which makes us grateful for people like you. Um, there's some concern, I think, over here about whether or not we can believe the accuracy of Chinese numbers. And so when they say there have only been 4,600 deaths from COVID-19, I think it makes Americans suspicious that we don't really understand the data. So the question I have for you is when, as the economy has been reopening, do you find the people you're talking to relying on the official numbers or kind of getting their own sense on the ground of, of what's going on? Um, I feel like every every government city, city government and local government is kind of taking it uh, at their own pace. But I think overall, the, the figures are more or less correct. Um, I, there's no way that they are 100% correct. And there's probably um, some undercounting going on. But um, China happened to lock down in a very draconian lockdown right as it was uh, right as the coronavirus was spreading here. Um, so I think a lot of the major cities like Beijing, for instance, only recorded um, like five or 600 cases total. Um, so they they really did a good job of keeping the the worst of it in Wuhan, and which was quarantined off from the rest of the country. Um, and there were never any huge outbreaks, maybe a couple thousand in the worst of hit cities in Zhejiang. Um, so I think uh, most of China has been okay for a while now, but they've been very um, slow going and cautious in, in getting reopening the economy. And of course, the Financial Times tracks economic activity there. Uh, where do you see the economic recovery? Are there parts that are recovering, parts that are stagnating? What's your view? Um, well, there's definitely a slew of bad numbers that have come out. Uh, GDP was down 6.8% in the first quarter. Um, I think it's similar to the US and other places where airlines, travel, hotels, all types of entertainment have just gone to zero. Um, 
and so that has slowly come back. But um, for instance, we just had a, a five day holiday, Labor Day holiday here, and there were 115 million trips uh, over that time period um, of like tourists going, leaving their houses and, and going out. But that's still down 41% from last year. So things are on their way to getting back, but it's definitely, um, I think most people are very cautious and restaurants are still not full. Um, and I think it kind of depends on in what part of the country you're in as well. Um, here in Beijing, it's the political capital. So people in the government is extremely cautious and they don't want an outbreak here. Um, whereas I've heard in like Shanghai or, or other cities that um, they're relatively more lenient in how they're controlling things. As you've seen different businesses get back to work and, and start to operate again, what are you seeing in the restarting? You know, how how well are some of how well are some of the options they're taking to restart working? Yeah, um, it's been interesting to see how they've. Um, I, I guess China has faced the same the same um, questions that everyone has faced: is like, how do you bring the economy back without without going too far and letting the the virus to keep spreading and so uh, actually in mid-February they they were faced with this question of like all these factories especially on the coast needed their workers back because this this really broke out here over Chinese New Year when all the workers were mostly in their hometowns which is in inner China in in villages in inner China so um, factories had to, to come up with solutions to get their workers back, like chartering buses, even chartering some airplanes to fly their workers back. Um, and, and then once they got their workers back to the factories, they a lot of places like, for instance, Foxconn, which is the major contract manufacturer for Apple um, and makes um, a lot of their iPhones. They were at first requiring every factory worker to come back to the factory in quarantine for two weeks in, a, in their dorm rooms, um, one person to a dorm room. But usually those dorm rooms will sleep uh, up to eight people. So they quickly ran out of dorm rooms and so they couldn't really get their factory um, back up to full production. Um, luckily for them, the, the provincial government kind of um, became more relaxed about it pretty quickly and they, they let workers um, start to come back with just a medical certificate that they could get signed off on in their village hospitals. So um, eventually, I think by the end of February, early March, um, the, for instance, this Apple factory or this Foxconn factory that makes Apple iPhones um, had most of its workers back and um, was producing pretty at near full production. Um, but still factory workers would be wearing masks and they would probably have um, redone some of the assembly lines to make sure that there was social distancing. And so when that was going on, there was a lot of concern. I mean, these, these for instance, this factory has a couple hundred thousand workers. So there's a huge concern that bringing all these workers back will um, set off another wave of infections. Um, but I guess they took enough precautions to make sure that didn't happen. Um, and, and for white collar workers, they've been doing similar policies, but it's been, uh, they've been taking it more slowly because white collar workers can work from home. So they've been staggering shifts or um, splitting companies into A shifts and B shifts and C shifts and rotating them through. You know, it's interesting because I think, again, when we're sitting here, we wonder if some of the government policies China's able to mandate are so different than something a democracy can do, you know, here in the United States. So 
What do you think the real lessons are that the United States can learn from the reopening and is still in our, you know, wheelhouse of things that we can control and do given our system of government? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think a lot of their policies around like white collars returning to work can be copied and they're not so draconian that um, they wouldn't go over in the United States or, or in other Western countries like um, before. So in these in companies where they were split into shifts, uh, the before your shift uh, before your shift, you would have to fill out a like a daily health questionnaire that would review your if you had any symptoms, if you had any travel, if your roommates or family had any travel. And that would be so the afternoon before you were set to go in, that would be sent to the HR department who would look through it and determine whether you were still able to go into the office the next day. Um, and then once you were going into the office, uh, when you were at the, um, the door to the office, you would um, check in, you would have a, a temperature check and you would go you would probably walk to an elevator that was um, well they still actually have them now is the elevators are separated into quadrants with tape on the floor so everybody has their little their little maybe half a square meter of the elevator that they can stand in as they go up to their um, work floor um, and then once once you were in the office you weren't having um, anyone in front of you, behind you, to your left or right, there was, they had a, what they called a grid of nobody around you. So you had a little bit of space and everybody was wearing masks still, um, which remains the case. Most people are wearing masks in their offices um, so that, yeah, you can't, you can't spread it to your, your colleagues. Um, they were also very worried about um, the like the central heating and the central air conditioning. So um, in February, it's winter. It was winter here in Beijing and it was really, really cold, but they all the office buildings turned off all central heating because mm. they were the central heating could spread the virus. Um, so yeah, I had some friends in working in office buildings and they said they were just freezing every day um, that they had to go in. But um, there was, yeah, there's concern that um, the airborne particles could spread through the central heating. Um, they did a lot of like ventilating, making sure all the windows were open, um, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so even, well, this probably wouldn't fly in the US, but in China they have uh, what are called chengguan, which are like the city management people that are usually um, driving around the city and making sure there's nobody hawking apples or something like that. And they turn those people into checking buildings. So they would go floor to floor, make sure you didn't have too many too many workers in your office every day oh. um, and would, would write you up or give you some type of fine if you, if you had too many people inside. Let me ask you, this is so interesting. I could go all day but knowing when we have two more minutes, let me ask you a final question. On last week's um, version of this program, we talked about consumer demand. And it's one thing to reopen a business that's consumer facing, but until the consumers feel safe, they're not coming back. What do you think it's going to take to get, say, the restaurants full again? Uh, when the, How do you get the demand back? Yeah, the, I mean, that continues to be a struggle for, for restaurants and other um, customer facing um, companies here. Um, so I, I think restaurants here universe, universally, they They've started doing temperature checks um, when you come in the door. There will also there's a, a government program where they can uh, monitor your they use your cell phone roaming data to see where you've been um, and to make sure that you haven't left. So if you've left Beijing for the last 14 days, they, they won't let you come and sit down in the restaurant. Um, and so I guess there's measures like that, hand sanitizer, making sure that there's um, 
more than enough space between you and other tables. Um, that kind of thing probably that does a lot to reassure people, um, but it also um, limits your occupancy at the same time, which I think a lot of restaurants are facing um, problems with not having enough customers still in there. A lot of customers are still doing takeout and delivery. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's a, I don't think we're definitely not back to normal here yet in terms of the customer facing industry. So that I think is something everyone's still trying to figure out. You've given us a lot to think about. I really appreciate you doing this. I hope we can talk again. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. So it was great to talk to him. One of the things he said afterwards was an example of uh, when people were returning to Beijing, the fact that the government would put sensors outside of their apartment doors so that the police could tell if they left their quarantine, uh, which is probably something we won't see in the United States. But it was a fascinating interview, and I'm sure that our next guest will be just as fascinating. Thank you, Dr. Montgomery, for joining us. Can you tell us, what is your view of the current state of this pandemic? Well, um, as chair of the World Medical Association and a retired radiologist, um, I, I, of course, I have a very German perspective on it, but I would also like to give you some insight in how other countries of the world coped with it. I think we had um, three different types uh, of countries, uh, and they are in different stages of the pandemic. There are um, the top scorers like uh, Taiwan and South Korea who had a very stringent epidemiologic uh, policy and they had experience. They hadn't forgotten SARS and MERS and all the other diseases of the past. And there are runners up like my home country, Germany, who very, very early um, started to get uh, cautious about this uh, disease. We have a very responsive and a very reliable uh, government here and uh, the federal government started uh, with very strong measures uh, after on January 27th we had the first uh, incident uh, of a Chinese worker importing uh, a case of um, SARS-CoV-2 into Germany and then we saw the coffins and uh, in Italy and France and that is when we became um, extremely uh, irritated and uh, expanded um, expanded capacities in hospitals and in intensive care units. Germany has now an amazing number of intensive care unit beds. Uh, actually, during the height uh, of our pandemic uh, movement, when, when the curve was still going straight up, uh, we still had about 40% of our intensive care capacity empty. It was reserved for COVID-19 patients and we didn't need it. So thus, uh, I think the runners-up managed to um, to flatten the curve and maintain their capacities. And um, there is a tremendous amount of countries who haven't yet managed to, that is the third uh, rank, who, who haven't yet managed uh, to flatten the curve, uh, which are still on the exponential rise of the disease. And uh, one of them is, for instance, um, the UK, where at the first time they were very negligent about the disease. They thought it would go away uh, like a miracle. That was a mistake uh, that we know now. As we are now, in most countries, countries of the world either still on the rise of the first wave or in some countries we have just overcome the first wave and that is for instance in Germany we are slowly decreasing in infectious numbers the curve is flattening even more and so we are talking after a very rough and strong lock 
lockdown, we are now talking about an easy ease up. Uh, and that is going to be very interesting because uh, for, for economy, for medicine, for people, a second wave uh, that we will not contain and that we will not be able to handle will be a disaster. So this is what we are preparing now. It is too early to say we have, uh, we have managed uh, the disease. Um, there will be at least uh, another year to come uh, where we have to, uh, to have to inform our people, where we have to inform industry. And uh, after that, we will have to talk a lot about um, globalization, uh, autarky and self-sufficiency just in time. Um, just in time uh, change because that's going to be really, really interesting how our whole life is going to change. So as uh, Schroeder said, as uh, Chris Schroeder said in the beginning, this is really uh, not a new normal or anything like that. This has changed our life more than World War II will have done and um, or the Vietnam uh, War in your country, because uh, if I could interpret the figures correctly, more Americans have died of COVID-19 than soldiers died in the Vietnam War. So this is just a brief, um, sorry, I have to be the, 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 the pessimistic guy here in this round. Everyone else is rather optimistic. I, From a medical point of view, it is too early to be too optimistic and we have to prepare for more to come. And we all have to avoid a second wave. And if the second wave comes, then it has to be as flat as possible. Otherwise, it'll be detrimental to our societies because people won't take the same infringements uh, in a second wave as they did in the first. In many countries of Europe, people were very, very good. The German population kept up with their physical distancing. Uh, they uh, they wore masks. Um, they were very cautious. Uh, but after some time, um, people just get fed up been uh, staying at home and in a second wave that will be a big social psychological problem. I stop there now because I think there are many more questions. Yeah, yeah. Let me jump in and ask you about something that I'm that I'm struggling with a little bit. So on one hand you have the imperative to flatten the curve that the whole goal of the stay-at-home orders in the beginning was to flatten the curve and allow hospitals and medical professionals to get ready and to catch up and to not be overwhelmed. On the other hand, you have uh, medical experts saying that we really won't be out of the woods until we achieve herd, herd immunity. And so talk to me about the balance between these two seemingly conflicting priority. Well, that is a very interesting, basically a an ethical question. Uh, herd immunity is, of course, a, it's a very clever idea if you come from a utilitaristic uh, ethics. If you think if you have the fastest approach for the greatest amount of people uh, to be over the crisis, then um, that is the best for the people. Now, that has the risk, and I think uh, the United Kingdom at least started off like that, and uh, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I have to be very cautious to give advice to you as I'm a guest in this program, but maybe America has taken the same road at the beginning, thinking that just let's get over with it as fast as possible. But that didn't work with Corona because Corona uh, kills people too fast. So that is the utilitaristic part of you. We in Germany had a deontologic uh, ethical approach to it, which means every life counts. And we have fought for every life. And looking at the figures up to now, and I'm 
pessimistic about the future, but looking at it up to now, I think this was the right way to go. So as we think about reopening, and as Europe thinks about reopening and starts that process, what do you think we should be watching for and learning from in Europe? And what do you think the barometers will be if we can tell if we're succeeding or failing? Very interesting question. We are in a heavy discussion of easing up here in Germany now. And the difficulty is we are a federal state. So the 16 uh, prime ministers, or you would say governors of the 16 states, are in a competition uh, who who is uh, has eased up most uh, most quickly. The problem is you can ease up on many corners. You can allow restaurants, you can allow people uh, to go shopping together, you can open shopping malls, whatever. But the result of what you're doing is not to be seen until at least two weeks later, possibly in the hospitals until three or four weeks later. And that is a great danger for, for everyone because we're in the process of easing up and it goes well for two, three, four days. Everyone thinks that nothing's happening. And you come to a prevention paradoxon. People think, yes, as a preventive measure, we should do that. But it has nothing to do with me. All the others should do it and then it'll be fine as long as I can. That's our problem. So I I, I think the, um, the ESA process will take much longer than we expected now. And it's the same in economy. I mean, uh, Volkswagen, our big uh, manufacturer of cars, has opened up 15% of their capacity. Uh, I don't have the figures of uh, BMW and Mercedes yet, but um, we have to start slowly and we have to monitor and therefore testing, 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 apart from washing your hands, washing your hands, washing your hands, and distance, distance, distance. That's the three issues which are most important for us in the future. You know, I hate to leave our conversation about Europe without asking you about Sweden. You know, in the United States, there's a lot of news coverage of Sweden handling this quite differently than the rest of the world with what look from here like good outcomes. How do you explain what's happening there? Yeah, actually, I have a lot of insight into Sweden because my wife is Swedish and I speak Swedish and I know quite a bit about what happens in Sweden and I think they gave, they went a similar way to um, to um, the UK and to the Netherlands. Uh, I mean, basically, uh, saying hello in Swedish is already a, an act of social distancing. So this is, if I may, may may do this joke. But apart from that, um, they have started off by allowing a lot and uh, also by taking in, into consideration that children obviously uh, don't get as sick as uh, elder people do, but they do carry. Uh, the infection and they do carry it to their parents and to their grandparents. At present time, I think uh, Sweden has uh, sharply rising death figures. Uh, the death toll is uh, increasing there tremendously and um, they have to reassess their position, I think, um, which is sad because they did a very good job at the beginning, but they have to, and that is something actually we all have to do in all countries. We always have to reassess uh, the situation and I have been caught out so often by saying something else than a few days ago because our knowledge is still very little but still changing at a tremendous pace and we have to keep up with signs and with figures all the time. Let me, um, before we go to audience questions, let me ask you as a, a doctor and, and in such great medical expertise and medical network, what you think 
think about um, the future for a vaccine and the future for better testing. You know, as we understand it, the antibody testing that exists now has a great deal of flaws. And so if you think about what could give consumers confidence to create demand, what could give employees confidence to go back to work, uh, testing that's accurate and gives clarity and confidence, as, we, as Chris and I were talking about earlier, uh, and, but also the thought that there could be a vaccine or therapeutics that could treat the disease are all things that would lead to confidence. So where do you think we are on those medical developments? Well, start, let's start with testing. I mean, in the long run, testing the PCR test for the virus, uh, the active virus, is available and should be done as much as we can. What is interesting is the antibody test. We were quite surprised that the FDA gave a license to some tests already, which uh, to my knowledge are not uh, neither specific nor sensitive enough. There are a few tests coming up now, but they are still on trial. They are not, uh, we cannot be sure, and they measure antibodies. We don't know whether these antibodies will ever lead to immunity. I mean, there are viral diseases uh, that uh, do not end up in uh, immunity, say like HIV. That's why we don't have a vaccine against HIV. So uh, it's like looking into a crystal ball. We all hope that in similar diseases, we have acquired immunity and we hope that we can acquire the same thing in Corona, but it is not certain yet. So the second question is a vaccine. Uh, if there is no immunity, then a vaccine would be useless. There is evidence that we might be lucky and there will be uh, immunity in the long run, and then we will get a vaccine. To my knowledge, there are 70 different teams in the world working on interesting uh, uh, bodies uh, that might come up, might end up as a vaccine, and Bill Gates and his foundation do a magnificent job on, uh, on financing uh, the research on these vaccines. Once we have the vaccine, we will, I'm afraid, have a second problem. There will not be enough vaccine available to vaccine 330 million Americans and 440 million Europeans, let alone people in Africa, because they will not be able to afford it. And there will be a tremendous competition and uh, there will be wars over vaccine, uh, possibly, if uh, if we don't uh, go into preventive measures and if we don't prepare for a situation like that. It'll take at least another year until we have a vaccine available for larger numbers of the population. Uh, let me bring Chris in for a minute. I saw you nodding when the doctor talked about, you know, it could be a year before we're really out of the woods and really know what whether we've succeeded or failed. Did I did I catch you just did I catch your facial expression right? Do you agree with Absolutely. that? No, I, I think I think it's unarguable. And I think, you know, at, at one level, there's a part of me who I am a hopeful person by nature um, that uh, embraces people who are testing uh, different kinds of reopenings here. But I think, as I said earlier, there's just a huge amount of humbleness and reassessment that's going to be required on a daily basis. And human beings want a straight line. And this is going to be a scattershot graph. And it's going to be, I think, a year for the reasons that he articulated perfectly. Do you, while you have the microphone, an audience question we got, uh, let's start with you, Chris, is what are, what are the unexpected risks that I should be thinking about as I think about reopening my company? You know, what, what am I not thinking about? I think that, um, you know, most thoughtful executives have been lining it out pretty well. I think there's something to check and then something to think about. The thing to check, again, is this instinct that, that this is all normal again, and it's just about today I can do this and tomorrow I can do a little bit more. And um, sometimes what comes with that is a dismissiveness, like, ah, oh, we've been at it long enough, let's just get back to work. Things will be fine. And I think that's an instinct that a good executive, um, I think, is going to have to check. The second thing which the, um, Dr. Montgomery alluded to is that we have to remind ourselves that 
um, there are many, many people with this illness who have no symptoms. So even in the discussion about China, where people are taking temperatures all the time, I think that's better than maybe nothing. But a lot of it is almost psychological because at the end of the day, I may have no temperature, but I may have had the virus from two days ago. And so I think that, again, we just have to have this ability to kind of look to each other and just sort of say, today is going to be a different day than yesterday. And it's going to be one step at a time when all of us are quite understandably dying for this to happen uh, right away. And, um, you know, if you're one of the businesses now, which are struggling profoundly, you've just had to lay off uh, 25% of your uh, workforce, you uh, may be possibly even going to zero. You want everything back now. Um, it's a very painful but real circumstance to realize that there are things that we're going to have to check in a more gradual way than we are naturally comfortable. Yeah, one of the themes of this series has been, we know that there is a health ecosystem and a job is an important piece of that. And so not only are business owners eager to open back up, but workers are eager to get back to getting their paychecks. And we know that that matters for their own personal health outcomes, too. So balancing both the stay at home orders and the getting back to work and getting this right is so important uh, and yet so unprecedented. Uh, Dr. Montgomery, one of the questions we're getting from the audience is I understand about contactless payment and I understand about virtual work and office work, but there are businesses that require require human touch, uh, hair salons, nail salons, massages, spas, etc. Do you think it's even longer than we're imagining before those things are open again? Or are there ways that would give you medical protection and still be able to open those types of businesses again? Well, that is one of the issues of uh, the ease up that you open up hairdressers. With. I was lucky. They opened up on Monday and I was the second uh, in my hairdresser's shop. Uh, actually, the first one was the German Minister of Finance. He, he sneaked in and front of me. But um, the <laughs> Olaf Scholz. But um, that is a very, very difficult question because they have all been in lockdown for six weeks. Um, we have a very good um, uh, instrument in Germany to make this uh, feasible for people. We call that Kurzarbeitergeld. Uh, it's very difficult to translate that in English. It means that people do get paid from the unemployment insurance. They get 60% of their paycheck, even without working. Uh, and they get get that for a fairly long time of uh, period of time, which means it was not existential, an existential question for both for workers and also for uh, for companies. They could simply, they, they didn't have to lay off the people. That's why you have a tremendous amount of unemployed. I think the figure is now up to 30 million people. We, we only had 300,000 which were laid off, uh, but all the others, about 10 million go, went on uh, on this type of social security. Um, so, so that works to give, to take away fear from people uh, that uh, are that, that existentially need paychecks. But in uh, in all businesses with physical attention, well, look at my job, physicians. I mean, uh, there was a worldwide shortage of PPEs, of uh, personal uh, protection equipment. Uh, <laughs> although I don't believe them in, in them, we, we wore cotton masks, uh, which were humid after 10 minutes, and uh, the, the glasses always steamed up. Uh, and uh, But that is something, it is at least something, and it is a bit of a shame that worldwide we were not able to set up uh, supply chains for PPE. And I think this is what I uh, mentioned earlier on. We have to talk about um, about globalization and self-sufficient uh, production. At least in Europe, I think we will think about building up factories for 
for producing our own PPEs, our own uh, drugs, etc. And we, we have to rediscuss this uh, issue of globalization. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When we think about this work at the chamber, we've thought about it in three buckets. The first bucket the chamber has worried about is how do we make sure that every family is protected and every business can stay in business? And that was our first goal in this crisis, was to help as much as we could with the public health crisis and forestall as much as we could the economic crisis. The second bucket has been about this path forward. How can we help people get back to work? And the third bucket is really about the learning post-pandemic, the uh, legislative and regulatory and litigation wave that's coming, but also the re-examination of supply chains and global trade. And there's this whole other bucket coming. That's going to have to be the next foundation series. But sticking with this one for a second on Path Forward, I asked you the question, Dr. Montgomery, about personal services. Chris, let me ask you the question about um, high-density businesses. And the other part of our membership that's very concerned are people casinos, hotels, cruise ships, airlines, people who require a lot of people in order to make money. So do you see a situation where there's some way to safeguard concert goers or sport attendees and, and open those businesses? Or is that a long way off? I believe it's a long way off. And I would like to be wrong on it because I miss that engagement myself profoundly. And I know most people do. I suspect what we'll see are some tests. So for example, a sporting event may open up or um, a restaurants will open up as we already know are happening in China and elsewhere where you just have a third of the occupancy and you just put people, you know, at a, at a much uh, larger distance. Uh, the second thing, and the doctor would know this better than I, but it just uh, does seem that outdoors is better than indoors. Uh, generally speaking, that people who are engaged and um, uh, in outdoor activities uh, will allow a, a, a kind of engagement which I suspect will help this. But the idea of the 55,000 people sitting on top of each other uh, at Yankee Stadium, I don't see that um, anytime in the, in the near future. Uh, let me, I'm going to try to ask kind of lightning questions and lightning answers here so we can get a few more in before our, our witching hour. And also knowing how late it is for poor Dr. Montgomery. Um, but Dr. Montgomery, another question people are asking here a lot is the role of children in transmission. And we know, thank God, that children aren't getting sick at the rate of adults and, and having the same um, fatality rates as adults, thank God. Uh, what we aren't as sure about is how contagious they are and how much they're transmitting in their asymptomatic little bodies. And it leads us to think about it a lot because until people can go back to school and back to childcare and back to camp, they're not sure how to go back to work. And so what, what is your medical background, your medical instinct telling you about the role that children might play in transmission and therefore how fast we can get back to school? Well, medical instinct is a very dangerous uh, thing. It might be <laughs> into the totally wrong direction. But science gives us very intriguing results. We have a study from Iceland saying that uh, children are not, not very contagious at all. Uh, and they kept their their schools open uh, and their, their uh, children, uh, you know, for the small children, the kindergartens open. And we have an opposite uh, study here from the Charité in Berlin, which is saying children are just as contagious as uh, adults. At the same time, in families, uh, even when there are five people living in in one, I wouldn't say in one room, but in one ordinary apartment, if they keep to the physical distancing and not the social distancing, but to the physical distance, which is difficult with children, then the infection rate of spreading it from one member of the family to the other is fairly low. If I remember the figure correctly, it is somewhere around 18 or 19 percent. And even in in pairs, I mean, this is a, a couple, two, uh, two men or two women or a man and a woman, whatever, uh, the infection rate from one partner to the other is only 45%. So 
the basic thing is not the question whether you're a child or an adult. It is the question, can you keep a distance? And that is what uh, Chris Ruder said, and it's totally correct. It is very, very, uh, very, very rare that you get infection outside. So if you fill the Yankee Stadium with only 5,000 people, uh, you will have a safe game, but it's not going to be the same fun. Do you, uh, what is the difference between physical distance and social distance? Well, we call, this is one of the big uh, political problems also for politicians because uh, social distancing means that you can't uh, see your grandparents, uh, that uh, risk groups, uh, old people, people with other diseases uh, are left alone. Uh, and um, this is why we prefer the word of, uh, of physical distancing. That means you, we have to be physically away from these people, but of course we have to give them social attention and uh, we have to look after them because otherwise they will pay, pay the price for the whole disease. And actually for politicians, this is a very difficult decision. If if I just may say, you have to you have four. You call it buckets. I would call it corners of a rectangle, and that is health on one side. It is the social psychological factors of distancing on the other side. It is economy on the third, and it's basic human rights because in Germany tracking um, would only be allowed on a voluntary basis. It's impossible to enforce tracking uh, in the German population, and the the Data Protection Act of the European Union forbids measures like that. So um, I wouldn't like to be a politician at the present time and have always have to find the right decision within this rectangle of four very important issues for our life. I asked you the childcare question, the, the matching question I'm going to ask Chris, which is we also can't get back to work until we have transportation. And so as you look around the globe and you're examining different markets, are you seeing any innovations in transit that might help us get back to work? No, I don't think yet. I mean, uh, right now, as I mentioned before, the major ride-sharing companies, whether they were minibuses in many of these markets, or actually the ride sharing we're familiar with like Uber abroad, these are all completely shut down. I mean, there's uh, very little activity going unless people are effectively saying we will not, um, we'll just not, we'll ignore the rules. Uh, but the governments have been very clear about cracking down on that. Uh, so I think in absence of, of more accurate testing, um, uh, there's going to be some difficulties here. But on the other hand, there's a no new way to think a little bit about how we work sort of as one part physical and one part distance. People say there will be less travel even when we come out of this. And, and maybe there will be because you're more comfortable in Zoom. But I can make an argument that there'll be more travel because employers are going to be more comfortable with you working. If your mom is ill, and you need to spend two weeks being with her, you'll, they'll be comfortable with you working there. Um, you'll have physical distance, but at least you can be there. If you want to work from a different location that's meaningful to you, there'll be a greater acceptance to that. And so eventually with testing and all, we'll go back to business as usual. And obviously New York is attempting to clean the subways uh, to have something that resembles that. But if you have you know thousands of people packed in the subways, that simply will not work. So we'll have to think differently about where we work and how we work in this sort of definition of commuting, uh, not only in the short term, but I think in the longer term. I'm going to ask you each for a one minute uh, wrap up answer. And Chris, my question for you is, what advice do you have for business leaders right now? If there was one takeaway of something they should be thinking about to be successful in this crazy time, what would you tell them to be thinking about? I think what I would say to business leaders is what I would say to policymakers. And I think goes to the fourth category that you will be turning your attention to next, which is all of us have bias of what we brought to what we have today. And a lot of us want to rationalize our beliefs pre-COVID as a kind of what's going on in COVID will rush that. So from a political context, if I was left of center before, this has now justified everything I ever said about it. If I was right of center before, it justified everything I've said. There are businesses that will have 
the same kind of bring the past to what the learning is here, whereas I think this is an opportunity to think much more uh, broadly. And secondly, as a corollary to that, there will also be another end of the spectrum feeling both of policymakers and business people to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So from a policy perspective, um, you may say to yourself, we need to rethink capitalism, and I think we, we should in many ways, but we can't also forget that globalization had massive positive effects on the on the economy and our businesses as well. We have to balance that. As executives, we will be thrilled by some opportunities that can be created by virtualness, but we'll be asking ourselves where that opportunity merges uh, with physical engagement going forward. And I think these are two things for us to gate ourselves, whether we're thinking about it from a policymaking perspective or as CEOs. Thank you so much. And let me ask you, Dr. Montgomery, if you could look out and talk to each person as an individual and give them one piece of advice for their own health and safety, what would it be? I think you might be muted, Dr. Montgomery. I'm, I'm sorry, the typical of that. I, I was just saying, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, and keep a distance, keep a distance, keep a distance. That is the essential for health. Uh, but at the same time, I think Chris Schroeder was perfectly right. We, we don't have to rethink capitalism, but we have to rethink society, I think, in a way, and we should build up uh, a new society. The, soci the post-COVID uh, society will be different. Uh, there will be climate change issues, there will be societal issues, there will be health issues, and we will see a slightly different world. And that, of course, frightens people. We have to know that change is always one of the greatest anxieties of people. And we, as leaders, have to make this possible for people to agree to change. And this is, I think, uh, the, the, the greatest job we will have to do in the future. Not think about the past, but uh, model the future. This is really our obligation. It's such a wonderful place to end, such a note to end on, because it's exactly what the U.S. Chamber Foundation tries to do, which is to help leaders think about emerging issues, start to get their thoughts together so that they can lead businesses, policymakers, communities, and families into a safer, healthier, uh, more productive place. Uh, I thought you were both incredibly additive to this conversation, as was Ryan. I can't thank you enough for your time. I hope you'll come back and be with us another time. To our audience, thanks for the great questions. Um, if you didn't catch the whole program or you'd like to catch up on others, go to uschamberfoundation.org or send us an email at foundation at uschamber.com and let us know what else you'd like to hear from us or how we can make these better. We really appreciate your time and thank you in particular to both of you. Thanks very much.